0: Well, good morning, Zion. How's everybody doing this morning? Awesome. Hey, uh, how many of you have just had, like, first of all, I just want to give a big shout out and a thank you to our praise band. Can we just give a shout out? Um, You ever had one of those moments where you're coming in, you're like, Lord, I need something new today. I need an encounter with you. And and for me, and, and I realize not everybody's wired this way, but for me, music is one of those things that have always... Has always been uh, an important part of who I am, and uh, it's. Sometimes I come in and I'm just waiting for God to show up, and I'm so grateful for moments like this, where music is more than an experience; it's an encounter with the Lord. And so I just want to thank Sean and Caitlin and our worship team for being faithful and obedient and seeking the Lord, and just quite frankly, bringing their excellence uh, to the Lord. So, this last week, well, first of all, I'm Jason, if you're new here. (laughs) If you're new with us, if you're online, thank you for tuning in. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. Uh, This last week, I was in Florida visiting a bunch of people from Zion and got to have some wonderful conversations and went and checked out uh, a wonderful church in Bradenton. And I was just so uh, blessed to get to be a part of that, but also getting to hang out with people. And coming back, it was really refreshing just to spend some time with the Lord. We're in this series right now where we're talking about awakening. What got you here won't get you there. And it's this idea of is that God wants to move us into new spaces and new places. And sometimes in order to do that, we have to get rid of our old understanding, our old wineskins of how we did things. And this morning, we're going to be talking about worship. And I just want to kind of prepare you. The worship I'm talking about is not just music. It's so much more than that. And as we're looking at it, Jesus has this unique way of talking about one thing in order to get us to another thing. We see this throughout the Gospels where what Jesus does is he he starts you here and then all of a sudden it's like he does a 180 and now you're all of a sudden you're talking about something entirely different. Jesus is notorious for doing this and this morning we're going to be talking about worship that how do we become awoken? How do we become awake to the new things that God wants to do in our lives and it starts with this thing called worship. So, if you have your Bibles, if you want to stand with me as we read God's word, we're in John chapter 4 and this is an all Too familiar story that just quite frankly has been read more times than I can count, but we're going to look at it maybe from a little bit different lens. This is John chapter 4, verse 21. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews, yet... A time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When He comes, He will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared to her, I am the one speaking to you, I am He. The word of the Lord, you may be seated. Um, So when I grew up, I was terrified of roller coasters. And I actually remember where it all started from. Um, It's kind of a least expected place. In fact, when I was sharing it in sermon read-through, they all kind of chuckled at me. It started at Disneyland on this ride called Pirates of the Caribbean. How many of you have ever been on Pirates of the Caribbean? It's not a roller coaster, but there's one part of it where you go over the waterfall. You know what I'm talking about? That one part freaked me out. Like, I was absolutely convinced that once we went over, I was going to go flying out. And because of that one encounter, every experience with a roller coaster, I was like, I ain't doing it. Those things are death traps, not happening. So when I was in ninth grade, my youth group went to Magic Mountain in California. Magic Mountain is like great America uh, in Chicago. Now, here's the thing. Magic Mountain is one giant roller coaster park, and I'm terrified of roller coasters. And, uh, and so here's the other part of me. I have FOMO, fear of missing out. And so what I'll do is I'll go to things even if I don't want to do them because I'm afraid I'm going to miss out on something. So we come to this roller coaster. This is called Colossus. It's the oldest roller coaster at the park, and it's made out of all wood. And I'm looking at it, and I mean, this thing is huge. It's making weird noises. And everyone in the youth group is like, come on, Jason, get on. I'm like, uh-uh. I'm not doing that. And this girl Don Kendrick who I had a crush on she goes, "Well, no, you should go. Just ride with my mother." And I'm <laughs> And Linda, and so I hop on the roller coaster with Linda, and I kid you not, the minute it starts to go up, all of a sudden she does this. <laughs> And I'm like, what is going on? Like, it was freaking me out. I mean, she's just laughing hysterically. Next thing I mean, when, when I say laughing, this is like viral video worthy laughing. Like, if we had YouTube, it'd be everywhere. All of a sudden, the ride's done. I didn't even know where it went, and I had an encounter that changed my experience. Now, here's the thing. Now, after that, now all of a sudden, I love roller coasters. I'm like, I wanna do that again. She wasn't on the next time I rode it, but it was still great. But here's what happened. Because of that one bad encounter, it limited all the other encounters in the future until I had a new encounter. And that new encounter with Linda Kendrick on the roller coaster all of a sudden gave me a different understanding of roller coasters. So much so now, here I am decades later and a couple years ago, Our family went to Disney World and then Universal Studios and they have a roller coaster park at Universal Studios and I got to take my daughter on the Hollywood Hall of Fame rock and roll roller coaster. Have you guys ever been on it? It's awesome. You start off straight up and you get to select your music and because the Lord had changed my encounter with roller coasters, not only did I get to introduce my daughter to this roller coaster, but I know because this roller coaster lets you pick your theme music for the ride, I got to introduce my daughter to Beastie Boys and Sabotage. And we get done and my daughter's like, that was awesome. And I'm like, yes, Beastie Boys are awesome. Sabotage, baby, we got to fight for the right to party. It's all good. And, but it all started with an encounter. See, here's the thing about encounters. And we're going to look at two words today that we may think are very similar, but I actually think they have different meaning. It's the word encounter versus experience. Now check this out. I didn't write this. I got this from the interwebs. Experience is a particular instance of a personally undergoing something. It means you, encounter, you have an experience with something, but you're essentially in control of it. Now I want you to think about how we handle experiences. You go to a restaurant, you rate your experience because you're technically in control. An encounter is something that you come upon or meet with especially unexpected. See, experiences you're in control of, but encounters rarely are you in control. And, and so as we're looking at this, I want to share from this blog poster, uh, her name's Michelle Joy, and she wrote this. When we go to a concert or a sporting event or a movie, we leave and share our experience with others. I had the best seat in the house. The lighting was perfect. The sound couldn't have been better. I give it a 10 out of 10. We rate our experiences all the time. We can even get online and rate a business experience, a restaurant experience. Almost any experience can be publicly rated. Now, here's the thing. We come to church ready to rate churches. It's easy to do. I went to this church in, in Florida, and I immediately went into rating mode. Like, what, how was the hospitality? Do I give it a 10, or do I give it an 8? And here's the difference though. When I think of an experience, I think of it as something I'm participating in and I'm on the receiving end of it. It is happening to me, but I am a spectator. I then evaluate and rate how I feel about what happened to me. When I think of an encounter, I think about what I gave and what I received. I feel like I'm a participant in the event. When I think of an encounter, I think of an interaction, an exchange, a meeting. If you've, how many of have ever been to a church where you didn't feel welcomed? You had an encounter. Did you want to go back to that church? No. How many of have you ever met a person that you had a negative encounter with? Do you want to hang out with that person again? Probably not. See, the problem that with encounters when they're bad is now all of a sudden an encounter frames your experience in the future. Experiences just reaffirm previous encounters. So when you have a negative encounter... You now, every experience is subject to that encounter. On the flip side is if you have a good encounter, it it frames your encounter and future experiences as well. And here's the thing, when we talk about church and Jesus, a lot of us have had bad encounters with Christians and therefore it ruins our experience with Jesus. But what I love about the Bible is the Bible never tells us that the church is perfect, only Jesus is. And when we come to church, we come to church thinking, well, I'm coming for an experience, but what if, what if God wants to do more than just give you an experience? What if God wants to have an encounter with you today? What if right now, even as you're sitting in these seats, as you're listening to this message, you're thinking, okay, God, how will I meet you today? See, experiences are impersonal, encounters are very personal. Um, you know, Excuse me, as we're talking about this current series, Awaken, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, here's the thing is, so often if if God is wanting to move us, because we're talking about these old wine, new wine versus old wine and old wineskins, is God is moving as we believe the Spirit is moving us into a season of newness, new encounters that opens up a new experience. But here's the problem, is if we don't have the right mindset, if we are going in with the old experiences, we might miss what God is doing here and now. If we come in and God is wanting to have a new encounter in your life, but it's framed through old experiences, you're, you might miss what God is doing. And as we're talking about worship, Jesus is going to start off in this woman at a well, an encounter that is going to change her life. And he's going to talk about one thing that ultimately is going to lead to a different thing. And this woman doesn't realize it, but she's going to have an encounter that will change her life forever. See, she had gone to the well and probably had hundreds, maybe thousands of experiences that just reaffirmed the same thing, but she's going to have an encounter that's going to reshape everything for her. And here's what I'm longing for is we want to be a church that wants to have regular encounters with God, that we want to encounter the goodness, the kindness, the loving heart of a father. Now, last week, Pastor Derek preached on God's word and that we need a love for God's word. It's not just about reading it, but we need to delve into its pages and have a passion and a love for this gift that is the Bible. But that gift, and I want to say this, if Derek didn't, it's okay. But we don't worship the Bible. We worship Jesus who is revealed in the Bible. Amen? And when we love God's word, we love God's word because it's a gift and we're looking and asking, okay, God, what is it that you want to reveal to us? And here's what I want to share with you this morning is when we think about worship, I want you to understand that the problem is, is so much of our culture as the church is we framed worship as a 20 minute experience as part of a church service. We even call it worship time. We're now going to worship the Lord. And then now it's prayer. And then it's, then it's the sermon. We even have entire sections of bookstores and audio stores that are dedicated to worship music. And the problem is, is that biblically worship is not just about music. It's all of it. Now, that being said, music is an important part of it, especially to the heart of God, but also to me and probably to many of you. How many of you Have a song that every time you hear it, it doesn't matter if it's 20 years old, the minute you hear it, you go, oh, this is the stuff. You guys know what I'm talking about? How many of you have a song like that? Raise your hand. Like every time you hear that worship song, you're like, yeah, that's, I'm ready, right? Now that song could be a year old. It could be 10 years. How many of you, that song is older than 10 years old? Okay, I, mine is a song called Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble, which was written by a band named Delirious in 1996, 95, somewhere around there. Now, I was, again, I was saved in a Baptist church. We call ourselves Charis Baptist because we closed our eyes during worship and we occasionally would raise our hands when the song said to, we were a charismatic Baptist. And I was introduced to this music movement called the Vineyard. And one of the bands that was a big part of the Vineyard movement was Delirious. And the first time I heard this song, I had an encounter with the Lord. It wasn't just about good music. Something happened in that moment. And still to this day, every time I hear that song, I experience that encounter all over again. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? It reminds me of a phase in my life, a time in my life. And the words of that song, yeah, the music is awesome. It's got drums. and you. I mean, Delirious was like a U2 worship band. It was like listening to U2 with worship. I was like, I didn't know it could be like this. But the words to the song are talking all about God's kingdom invading the kingdom of darkness. Did you feel the mountains tremble? Did you hear the oceans roar? When the people began to sing of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then it talks about opening up the gates and letting the flood of heaven come in. And the first time I heard it, I was like, yes! Yes, Lord, I want that. Bring that. And to this day, when I think about it, it changes everything 25 years later. But here's the thing about worship. (coughs) Worship is not just about music. Listen to the definition of worship. To honor or show reverence for a divine being or supernatural power. That's what most of us think of worship. But here's the second one. To regard with great or extravagant respect, honor, or devotion. You know what that means? Is that every musician in the world is a worship leader. ACDC, Angus is a worship leader. He is. So is Motley Crue. Yes, I'm dating myself. Like some of you kids are like, who's that? They're all worship leaders. Every band is a worship band. Every song is a worship song. The question is not whether they're worshiping. It's what are they worshiping or who are they worshiping? And when we begin to think about that, we're realizing that worship is everywhere. We were created to worship. It's part of who we are. We naturally have a need, a core need as human beings to worship. This morning as we're looking at the story, again, (coughs) Jesus is going to start here talking about one thing, and he's going to get to an altogether different thing. And when he does it, at first, it, it feels jolting and shocking and kind of like, what the, how did we get from here to here, Lord? I don't understand. And part of it is because Jesus understands something that we often miss, is that these things are more connected than we realize. The things in our life have more to do with our worship than we give credit for. And so as we're reading this story in John chapter 4, Pay attention. Listen to what's happening because here's what I want to tell you is if you allow the Holy Spirit to, you might just have an encounter with a God who's crazy about you. A God who wants to speak into some things in your life, some hurts, some pains, some truth that maybe you didn't even know you were ready for because encounters are often unexpected. John chapter 4. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. I love this next part. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. Even early on in Jesus' ministry, he was letting his disciples do this stuff. Even, Even early on, they're the ones who are doing the baptizing, not him. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, I want to show you this map of Israel so you have an idea of what's going on. Now, Israel is not a very large Country. It's actually pretty small. It's just, it's like 70, 80 miles long. It's not long at all. And you'll notice Judea is where Jesus was. That's to the south. And Jesus needs to go to Galilee. He's done with his ministry. And you'll see that green line, okay? Now, typically, it was not uncommon for a Jewish rabbi to avoid that middle section called Samaria. Samaritans were a reminder of Israel's unfaithfulness hundreds of years earlier where Israelites intermixed with other religions and it created kind of a half-breed culture. And because of this, Jewish rabbis, the the Israelites and the Samaritans hated each other. They wanted nothing to do with each other. The Samaritans were kind of a a crossbreed of Judaism with some paganism and they believed in the first five books of the, the Old Testament, the Torah, but everything else they ignored. So much so, you'll see in the middle there, there's this place called Jacob's well. Jacob was the, he's one of the core figures in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. And Jacob wrestles with God and has his name changed to Israel. But what do they call the well? Not Israel's well, but Jacob's well. They see Jacob as their father. Israel sees Jacob as the one who became Israel. So what rabbis would often do is they would detour all the way around, because if they encountered a Samaritan, they could become unclean. So rather than risk it, they just walked all the way around for this hefty detour. Now another point of compar- comparison: the Sea of Galilee to the north is only about twice the size of our lake here in Clear Lake. How many of you when you pictured the Sea of Galilee, pictured like an ocean, this map? I mean, all the pictures have these raging storms. There's actually big storms because they get huge gusts of wind that come through. It's actually not very large. So Jesus, all of a sudden, instead of going around, goes through Samaria. Now, there's, here's what's cool that takes place in here. John 4.4. 4. Now, Jesus had to go through Samaria. This is not an efficiency conversation. He could have gone all the way around. No, Jesus had to go through Samaria, and I believe there's a reason for that. See, Jesus was not just God. He was God plus man. And in order to be fully man, he had to be completely dependent on the Father and the Spirit. Jesus didn't just do things because in order to be fully man, how many of you know God's voice every time it speaks? None of us do. Jesus had to depend on the Holy Spirit, and so he pushed that Godhood part of him. He submitted himself to humanity so much so that everything he did, he had to do it, listening to the Spirit and knowing the Father's will. Listen to what is written in John chapter 6. This is from Jesus. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. In John chapter 5, Jesus says this, Very truly I tell you, The son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. Jesus was completely Holy Spirit dependent, completely Holy Spirit directed and driven. Now, a couple weeks ago, we talked about this thing called Tov. What does Tov mean? Good. It's Hebrew for good. And that Jesus came to bring God's goodness into a world that was falling apart. He is the ultimate Tove moment. Everything Jesus did, he does to take back ground that was lost to sin and shame with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus is coming to bring God's goodness, to bring his kingdom into a world. Now, here's what's happening. He's sitting in Judea and he's got to go to Galilee. And I, this is how I picture it. The Holy Spirit says, Jesus, go through Samaria. Now here's the difference between Jesus and me and probably you and, and Jesus, because I think this is normally how it play out. If the Holy Spirit said, Jason, go through Samaria, my first response would be, why? And the Spirit would say, because I said so. <laughs> Jesus instead doesn't question the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit says, go through Samaria, Jesus' response is, cool. Yes, that's in the Greek. I'm pretty sure of it. Actually, John did a study, a word study, and found that there is a Greek word for cool. It means breezy. So actually how I picture it is, the Holy Spirit says, Jesus, go through Samaria, and Jesus goes, breezy, yo. That's ex- it's in the Greek. Trust me. Okay, there we go. So Jesus is walking through, but here's what I want you to hear. God uses detours. Detours are opportunities for God to move unexpectedly. Now, our Christmas series was all about detours. Now, it may seem weird. Why is Samaria a detour? Because again, most Jews would have gone around. Jesus is willing to go through and get unclean and uncomfortable. That's usually what detours are, but God uses detours. All right, here he goes. Verse 5 and 6. So Jesus came to a town in Samaria called Sikar. Near the plot of ground, Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus was tired as as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Now, you can actually visit Jacob's well today. This is the real well. They've they basically discovered that this well is around the same time of Jesus, and so and it's in the right place. You can visit Jacob's well. Now there's a pastor in New York named John Tyson. This priest said, "Hey, would you like a drink?" And he's like, "Yeah," and so he drinks from Jacob's well. And his response was, "It was gross." (laughs) 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 Wells matter. Now, there's another part of this that you may miss. I know I have for years. As you read it, there's a small phrase in there that, when you realize what it's actually telling us, could be incredibly profound. Jesus was tired. See, I think we forget that the humanity, the human side of Jesus, he experienced tiredness. Now, I can tell you that when I'm tired, when the Lord tells me to do something, I usually be like, I don't want to do that. I'm tired. No. But Jesus, even though he was tired, exhausted, and hungry, he takes this detour because he realizes that God is doing something. Um, So when I was when I landed in Miami, I was supposed to land at Miami at 4 p.m. on Monday. I got in at 1 a.m. on Tuesday. I was tired. And we've been talking about Tove moments for a while now. And so I'm stopping at the gas station because I need to get an energy drink, because I'm tired. And as I'm there, this homeless man walks up to me and he's got a spray can for tire cleaner and a rag. And he says, hey, I'm not going to beg for money. Can I clean your tires? I'm like, no, man, it's a rental. And I'll be honest, I was tired. And what I wanted to say was, dude, leave me alone. And then I realized I've been telling people about Tove moments, those unexpected moments where we get to bring God's goodness. And I'm just going to be real with you. I I wanted to ignore the man. And there was that little part of me who went, Jason, you've just been preaching on Tove Moments. Don't be a hypocrite. So beleagueredly, tiredly, I went, all right. And so I said, hey, can I buy you something to eat? Don't worry about it. Can I just buy you something to eat? Every part of me just wanted to move on. I was exhausted. I go, I get this man something to eat. I come back and I get to pray with the man. I have a, a conversation and I walked away and here's the deal. Even though I was tired and even though I reluctantly obeyed, I didn't want to. I did it. I walked away blessed because of it. See, when we're tired, we tend to be more resistant to the Lord. True? When you're tired, when God says, hey, do you want to do that? What's your normal response? Your normal response is, "I I don't want to do that. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. But here's what we learn about this. Our limitations don't change God's expectations. See, it's when you're most limited, when you're the most tired is often when God wants to do the most things because guess what? It's no longer in your power and strength that's in His. See, when I'm in control, when I've got energy, it's not a big deal to do hard things. I mean, it's still hard, but I can do it. But when I'm tired, that's when God usually wants to use me the most because in those moments, it's not my strength, it's His doing it. There might be things in your life right now that you've been trying to do in your own energy. And yeah, you're tired. But here's what I want you to hear is that sometimes in your weakness, Christ's strength is most seen and known. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12:10. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Jesus depended on the Spirit, even in his tiredness. Now, here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit told Jesus to go through Samaria, I don't think Jesus knew he was going to have an encounter with a Samaritan woman. I think he just knew God was going to do something. He was, that's all he was prepared for. I don't think he had supernatural knowledge at that point. I think the Spirit said, go, so he went. But he was prepared for whatever the Holy Spirit had for him. And there he encounters this Samaritan woman at a well. And this encounter is going to change this woman's life. Now, we may not fully understand the importance of wells. And and I, I want you to think about this for a second. I don't believe that there's anywhere in Scripture that when Jesus goes somewhere, it's not just happenstance. The Holy Spirit could have directed Jesus to meet this woman on a road. We know of other places where that happened. We also know that it could have happened in a marketplace. No, he met this woman at the well Because wells mean something. See, in the ancient world, again, water is not very plentiful. Wells become a source of life. They're a place that you gain strength from. You need water to live. And so Jesus has been led to this well to meet a Samaritan woman. And we're going to see this is where the story starts getting interesting. Jesus is going to do something scandalous. Something that, quite frankly, could ruin his reputation. John 4, 7, when a Samaritan woman came to draw water... Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus is about ready to break a whole bunch of cultural rules and boundaries. Things that were big no-nos in the world of his time. First, he's a Jewish holy man. Which means he's not even supposed to associate with Samaritans. Samaritans are unclean. Second, as a rabbi, he's actually a single rabbi, which was rare. Most rabbis were already married. Jesus is a single rabbi and he's about ready to talk to a single woman who's not just any woman, but a Samaritan woman. There's all kinds of things going on, but here's the bigger part. It's when he's encountering her that's even more scandalous. See, in the ancient world, if you wanted a drink of water, if you were going to go to a well, you would go in the morning when it was cool. Because remember, they're not just bringing their camel cup or whatever that thing is called. And they're, not, they're not bringing that stuff. They've got these huge pails that they have to carry water with. You would usually go in groups. And the reason why you went as groups is that often robbers and rapists would hang out at wells. Not only is she not going in the morning, she's going in the middle of the day, which means she has no friends. Now, Samaritans were already outcasts to Jews. She has been outcasted by other outcasts. There's something going on in her life that is forcing her to literally put herself in danger. She is going to the well to, to draw water by herself in the middle of the day. This is a social commentary in a small phrase. Jesus is going to encounter a woman who is racked with shame and guilt at a well. Now, this exchange takes place, and and here's what we realize is that social limitations and expectations of the day, they were not a factor to Jesus. Jesus didn't care how he looked to other people. He only cared how the Father saw him. Now, we have the same social limitations. They're just around different things, and as we look at it, this is the right kind of scandal. Jesus is going to do scandalous things because he's willing to love people that other people will not love I wish church scandals right now were this kind of scandal. I'll be honest, this last couple of weeks, there's been several high profile pastors who have been caught up in scandals of sin. They're not in scandals because they're loving people that Christians shouldn't be hanging out with, whatever that means. It's the kind of scandals that are found because you have pastors and church leaders who have been doing shameful things that, quite frankly, give Jesus and the church a black eye. Like, I wish we had scandals today that were more about us being in unacceptable places, loving unacceptable people. That's the kind of scandal we should be having. Amen. But it's not happening in the church and my heart aches for it because this is not what Jesus has. And here's the the next point is the spirit moves where and how he wants to. God doesn't care about social boundaries when it comes to mission. Sometimes, if you're on mission for Jesus, you're going to encounter people that may not smell the best, may not look the best, are going to do things that you don't approve of, and God has put you right in the middle of it to love them deeply, to show them Jesus and His love for them. It'll make you uncomfortable. That's the right kind of scandal. I can't believe. Did you see who Jason was hanging out with? Jesus went to places because he was on mission. Jesus answered the woman, John 4.10, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This woman doesn't know it yet, but she's about ready to have an encounter. She had been to the well probably hundreds, maybe thousands of times. Each time was an experience. Reaffirming the previous experience, she was now going to have an encounter with God and had no idea. All because she went to the well that day. Jesus is going to meet her in her brokenness. This is an encounter she will never forget. Sir, the woman said... You have nothing to draw within the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? See again, the water, the problem with water is this. When water moves, it tends to be clearer. But when water doesn't move, it becomes stagnant, filled with disease and sickness. So you built a well around a moving wellspring where fresh water would come in. But Jesus is saying, I have a different kind of water for you. You're looking for water that only fulfills you temporarily. I have a living water. Now, this is actually an Old Testament metaphor. God declares in the prophets that there will come a living water from the source that is God. And Jesus is talking about this and he's saying, listen, you keep on coming to the same source of water, but it leaves you still thirsty. I have living water. And in her mind, she's thinking, where's this magical water? Can I have some of this water? Like, What is the water that I don't have to drink ever again? It satisfies my thirst forever, not realizing what's going on. She's caught up in the natural and Jesus is trying to point her to something supernatural. Jesus answered her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up in eternal life. The woman said to him, sir... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, I want you to hear what's going on here because I think it's easy to miss. The reason why she didn't just want living water so that she didn't have to drink again. Every time she came to that well, she was reminded of her sin and shame. Every time she walked through the town carrying the buckets by herself, it was a visible reminder of her shame. Some of you in this room have shame that you're carrying around and you're drink, you're coming to the well of shame instead of a well a well of living water. Some of you are caught up in mistakes and sins that have burdened you down. And you're just, this is what the woman's saying is, please tell me this where this living water is because I'm tired of living in the shame and loneliness of every day, having to come to that well by myself with no community, no love, no affection because I've made mistakes. We've all made mistakes, but some of us continue to drink from a well of shame instead of a well of living water. She is desperate. And God knew her desperation and was going to meet her in this moment. See, Jesus is bringing this woman good news, not good advice. This is not just, hey, I can give you some water. That's good advice. There's better water over there. That's advice. No, he wants to bring freedom for her. He wants to bring life to her. He wants to breathe life into this shame-filled, broken woman who so desperately needs to understand who God is She thinks she understands and she doesn't, but Jesus does. Some of you in this room have been drinking from the wrong well for a long time. Some of you, you're finding that you're not only unsatisfied, but you're getting sick. Because the problem with wells is that once the water gets contaminated, you get sick from that water. You need a new well. You need a new source. And I'm here to tell you, is Jesus came not to just give you good advice, hey, that's better tasting water. He came to give you good news, a new identity, a new freedom found in Jesus. Some of you need that freedom. That woman was exhausted, not just from having to carry that water back, but she was tired of carrying shame every day. The water that Jesus is telling her about is a water to freedom. But before she can have freedom, she has to be confronted with some stuff. And Jesus is going to confront some sin in her life, but he's going to do it in an incredibly gracious and loving way. Uh, A few months ago, Jennifer Colby, our adult ministries director, taught in our Galatians series, our Passport to Galatia. And she talked about how how to have healthy conflict. Healthy conflict doesn't avoid sin, but it doesn't bring shame and guilt. It brings freedom. And we need to learn how to do this. God sometimes needs to have conflict with us. We need to have an encounter, an unsafe meeting with God so that he can expose some things in us so that we can find real freedom. Here's what's going to happen. Jesus is going to have this because this was not an accidental encounter. Why did Jesus meet this woman at a well? Well, wells were a source of life and she was drinking from the wrong well. She was drinking from a place that was ultimately making her sick. He's going to confront some sins in her life by using this well illustration. This well is a metaphor for places that you drink. Now, here's the thing about water. We know that the human body is made up of about 60% of our body is made of water. And that on average, a human being can go a couple weeks without food, but most humans can't go more than three days without water. Water is life. And this woman has been drinking from wrong wells. She's been going to wells that are poisoning her, that have made her sick, that have ostracized her, that have limited her. She had encounters in her life that led to bad experiences. And now Jesus is coming to reframe a new encounter with her. And she needs a new way of seeing herself and God and everything in her life. Now, I want to give a quick side note. I told Kate, our children's director, that I would share this because life uh, water is so important z kids is actually sponsoring they're raising money to build clean water for cities in america that have dirty water like flint michigan places where you have children in our country still today who have unsafe water that's practical tove that's bringing tove into the world so just a side plug i told kate i would share that but more it's more than just this by the way we know when water's not good there's a reason why they say don't drink the water in mexico y'all know what i'm talking about we understand the importance of water, but really what water, Jesus is going to use this well as a way of exploring her brokenness, exploring what's really been going on in her life. John four sixteen, Jesus says, go call your husband and come back. So wait, they were just talking about water. Now Jesus is talking about husbands and the woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is very true. How do we go from water to husbands? See, this woman had been so desperately looking for love, she kept on going to wrong sources. Now there's a couple different ways of understanding this phrase husbands. One, is that she was married five times. Now, in the ancient world, a woman was not allowed to ask for a divorce, which meant she had done something that justified her husband divorcing her five times, five different men, and now she was on her sixth husband. Or she had actually had five husbands and each one was not her own. Either way, this woman, in an attempt to find love Life and happiness was digging her own wells in toxic places and it led to where she was now, alone, isolated, and shame-filled. And so she does what most of us do when we're confronted with sin. Now, I want you to hear this. All of us dig wells in the wrong place in an attempt to find life, love, and happiness. All of us do. I do, you do. It's human nature. We want to be in control. I want you to think about right now, where are the wrong wells that you're digging? Instead of digging wells that lead to Jesus, instead of trusting in God, what are the wells that you're digging in your life that are leading to sickness? I have them, you have them. That's part of our human condition is that we all tend to want to trust in ourselves, don't we? And as you think about that, I want you to hear this is that Jesus wants to confront those. He wants to have an encounter with those, not to shame you, but to set you free because you are slowly poisoning yourself, your marriage and those around you. Now, here's the crazy thing. The way they did wells, because again, you had to carry water back. They didn't have bottles. So you would bring huge pails and you would go get water at the well and then you would pour it into what's called a cistern. A cistern was either a natural hole in the ground, usually around limestone, Or it was a man-made cistern and you would pour water in there. But here's the thing. If you're digging from an unhealthy, an unsafe well, if you're doing well that isn't moving water, you are not just bringing toxic water back to the cistern. It now gets sicker. That's the thing about poison. When water is polluted, it gets more polluted, not less over time. And when you bring it to a cistern, not only are you drinking from it, but you're inviting others to drink from it as well. When you dig your own wells, you're not the only one being poisoned. You might be poisoning your family and those around you because they find themselves drinking from it as well. Jesus is confronting in her and in us that all of us tend to want to dig our own wells. Jeremiah 2.13, for my people have committed a double evil. They have abandoned me, the fountain of living water, and dug cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that cannot hold water. Where are you digging and where are you bringing that water to? Are you trusting in the Lord or trusting in yourself? This is what the woman says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Now, I love this, because here's what we all do. When we're confronted with something uncomfortable, we tend to want to change the subject. And that's what she does. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Hey, wait a second. We were just talking about you were having affairs. You're on your sixth man, and all of a sudden, she wants to talk about worship. Why? Because when we get uncomfortable, human nature is deflection. What she doesn't realize is she's actually stepped right into what Jesus wants her to. See, this whole well water metaphor, all of these men, this is all about the same thing, worship. See, the worship, she was worshiping something. And Jesus is going to use her deflection as a way to getting to the truth. This whole encounter was not about her sin, but about what she was worshiping. All worship is this, all sin is a worship issue. It's part of what we struggle with, and so Jesus is going to use her deflection to get to the real issue. Maybe she thought by talking about where worship should happen, she could move on from the subject because, hey, this is super uncomfortable. Jesus wants to have an encounter with her, and so that encounter makes her uncomfortable. Some of you right now are like, Jason, I'm uncomfortable right now. Can we talk about something else? No, because what Jesus wants to bring us to is freedom, Do you think that this woman would have gone out of her way to go to the well that day if she knew she was going to have an encounter with Jesus where her sin was going to be talked about? No. She would have been like, I don't need to drink today. (laughs) I'll, I'll go somewhere else because encounters are unexpected and Jesus expects the unexpected with her. Jesus knew she was worshiping something or someone with her life, but it wasn't God. She had abandoned the source of life, God, and was digging her own wells, her own cisterns, and they brought sickness and disease, not life. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews." Now listen to this, yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father through new songs from Elevation or Maverick City or an old hymn with electric guitars or an organ or the Lutheran Green Book, not the Red Book, that's evil, (laughs) with raised hands and closed eyes or jumping up and down or quiet reverence with personal preference of style and sound. No. See, we confuse the expression of worship with the object of worship. Some of us are so busy thinking about, well, uh, you know, judging how worship happens, and we forget that worship is an internal thing. I'm going to pick on Brad Watson. I love Brad Watson. Brad and I have talked many times, and he's the first one to tell me. He goes, Jason, I don't really like the music thing. I don't like singing. It's not my jam. Uh, he's like, if we could, if we had an hour and a half message, that'd be great. We would be the fastest declining church in Clear Lake, Iowa, <laughs> if we did that. And, and, but here's the thing. Anybody who knows Brad Watson, that man loves Jesus. And I've watched a man who doesn't like to sing as he sings because God loves when he sings, but it's not his natural expression. So here's what I want you to hear. You can raise your hands and look like you're worshiping God, but if your heart is far from him, who cares? And you can sit in reverence and quietly worship the Lord, and if your heart is directed at him, amen. It's not about the expression of your worship, it's the object of your worship. When your object is in the right place, your expression moves in that place as well. Now, I want you to hear this. I raise my hands in worship partly because I believe God loves when we do that. But also, that's just who I am. I'm an expressive person. Some of you aren't that, and that's okay. Where is the object of your worship? Are you directed towards Jesus? And so for some Lutherans in here, this is freedom because like for a Lutheran to raise their hand is like this, unless there's a question and then they're all about it, right? And that's okay. Okay. Because it's the object of our worship that leads to the direction of our expression of our worship. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me? Now, here's the thing. We were, as we were going through in sermon read-through, this is actually what Jesus really says. This is what the kind of worship that Jesus desires. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. You notice Jesus doesn't say anything about lifting hands. He doesn't say anything about jumping up and down or sitting reverently and reading, going through a liturgy. That's not not what Jesus is looking at. When it says that those who are worshiping in spirit, that word in does not mean like in the spirit of worship. No, it actually means in proximity to the Holy Spirit. That our worship should come from our relationship to the Holy Spirit as an outflowing, an outpouring of what God is doing inside of us. And if you don't know Jesus, it's no wonder that worship seems foreign to you because Jesus is not the object of your affection, something else is. I'm going to invite the worship team to come up. And as we come to this last part, I want you to think about this because not only are we called to worship in spirit, meaning in relationship with the spirit, the spirit moving in us, but also truth. Jesus is the truth. And we must acknowledge that truth is found in Christ. Truth matters to God because God is truth. Just like God is love, God is truth defined in the person of Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Now, I want to share one last scripture. And while we were doing sermon read-through, I read the scripture and I was using it as a justification of why we raise our hands in worship. And Megan Dennis, our executive director, she's like, you know, this is how I read it. Now, listen to this. This is so great. Psalm 63, you, God, are my God. Earnestly, I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you in a dry and parched land where there is no water. I have seen you in the sanctuary and beheld your power and your glory because your love is better than life. My lips will glorify you. I will praise you as long as I live and in your name I will lift up my hands. Now I've read this verse so many times. I'm like, see, we're supposed to lift our hands and worship. And I believe there are passages in scripture that talks about we need to raise our hands to the Lord as a community. We do it as an expression of 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 glorifying who Jesus is, what he is doing. I will be fully satisfied with the richest of foods. With singing lips, my mouth will praise you. And here's what Megan said. And it was like, I never thought of it this way before. It's a total mic drop. She goes, I could also read it this way. This is what he did. His response, he lifted hands. But what if I will praise you as long as I live and in your name, I will bring my offering. And in your name, I'll love my wife as Jesus loved the church. In your name, because your love is greater than life, I will go out and be the man, the woman, the husband, the wife, the son, the daughter, the person that God has called me to be. Yes, worship can be about a physical experience. Yes, music is part of it. But our lives are meant to be directed at worship, not just a 20-minute part of a service. And yes, sometimes God calls us to be uncomfortable, but here's the bigger part. God wants to have an encounter with you. What if you came to church ready for an encounter with God, not just another experience? What if you came in ready saying, God, I'm tired of drinking from the wrong wells. My marriage is falling apart. My life is falling apart. Or maybe you're making tons of money and doing great, but none of it satisfies You're digging from the wrong well and Jesus came to say, I have a new well for you, one of freedom and forgiveness, one of wholeness, but you need to come to the right source. You need to come to the well that's worth and worthy of your worship, which is Jesus Christ, amen? I want to invite you to stand with me and I want you to hear this last part. Acknowledging that God is worthy of our worship means, yes, it's music as worship, but it's also prayer. It's the message, it's our tithes and offerings, it's fellowship in the hallway, it's serving in Z Kids ministry, it's it's hospitality, it's talking to one another, it's the friendliness as we're out in the hallway, it's going to lunch with each other, it's small groups. All of these things can be worship and expressions of worship when we're doing them because of who God is, not who we are. So what's this got to do with an encounter and experience? We want to be a church that sees worship not as another experience, but an opportunity for an encounter with a living and loving God. This morning, if you need that encounter, I'm going to ask you, would you do me a favor, just close your eyes for a moment. We don't do this often. But if, if this morning you're realizing you need an encounter with Jesus, if you want to give your life to Christ, maybe you've been drinking from the wrong wells, if that's you, would you just lift your hand for me? If you're acknowledging you need Jesus, if you're saying, I need a new well, keep that hand up. Lord, right now, I just pray there are those in this room, some of them for the first time are surrendering their life to you. Others are realizing they've been drinking from the wrong well and it doesn't satisfy. I want to give you a prayer that you can do and it's a simple prayer and it's a way of coming to the Lord and opening up an opportunity to have an encounter with God. You guys ready for the prayer? It's simple, it's just this surprise me, God. Would you say that with me? Surprise me, God. Because encounters are surprises when God meets you unexpectedly. May we come and encounter the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. May we come and move into what God has for us. We don't want to just simply create encounters of experiences. We want an encounter with the King. Amen? We're going to receive our tithes and offerings. I want to invite you to come forward. Bring your worship through that. But let us come and worship the King of Kings. And in Jesus' name, everybody said. Amen.